Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Burke and Wills expedition. Time for a bit more Australian history. Bloody ripper, can't believe me luck. Get around it here. Uh, the Burke and Wills expedition uh, was an expedition primarily led by two blokes named Burke and Wills. So, you know, you're kind of getting exactly what you signed up for here. Uh, took place in 1860 into 1861 and essentially was an attempt to cross the, the continent of Australia, the Australian mainland, from south to north and, and then back again, hopefully, obviously, you know. Would not not too much of a successful expedition if you don't come back home. So that was obviously the hope. Uh, now, an interesting bit of trivia about Australia, not, not sure if you're already aware of this, but it is uh, bloody huge. Australia is absolutely bloody enormous. And uh, the inland is also pretty empty. There is a whole lot of nothing in central Australia. And uh, so this was going to be pretty pretty bloody hard yakker from the get-go here for these blokes. And at this stage, back in the 1860s, uh, even beforehand, uh, European settlers had no idea, no idea what was going on in inland Australia. Blokes talked about there being all sorts of silly, ridiculous nonsense like an inland sea and, and other rubbish like that. But um, as it had never been explored by non-Indigenous people up until now, the Royal Society of Victoria, they set up this expedition to figure out what the deal was. They wanted to know what was going on in inland Australia and try to you know, fill out a little bit more of the map there. Uh, at this stage, of course, Australia isn't its own country. Uh, it didn't federate till, uh, until 1901. And Victoria is one of the colonies, along with New South Wales and, uh, and, and South Australia and what have you. Um, and it was, the, as I say, the Royal Society of Victoria, the colony of Victoria, who set up this whole deal. They organised 19 blokes, uh, all told, led by Burke and, and later on also Wills. And uh, they had a fair bit of bad luck, had to slog through a fair bit of rubbish right from the start. But uh, before we too get into the weeds about you know how the expedition ended up, let's head back and, uh, and talk about how it all started. So we're going back here to the 1850s. And in the 1850s, things are going bloody great in Australia, going gangbusters they are. And specifically in the colony of Victoria, best part of the whole country, mate, don't even worry about it. And this is because gold had been discovered in the countryside outside of Melbourne, the capital of Victoria. Greatest city on earth, of course, we all know that. And thousands and thousands of people had flocked to the gold fields from around the world. The population was booming, money was coming in hand over fist, and Melbourne obviously already I mean, it doesn't, you know, we all know, greatest city on earth anyway, but at this time it really was incredible. For a colonial city at the arse end of the world, it was the second biggest city in the British Empire, and it rivaled major European cities with libraries, universities, other institutions like that. Long story short, Melbourne rules, best place on earth, and it all kicked off properly in the 1850s with blokes digging up gold and creating billions and trillions of dollars uh, in, you know, wealth, prosperity, what have you. Anyway. Given this massive boom, blokes in Melbourne are looking around to modernise this city and uh, they decided, you know, they want to connect Melbourne to the new telegraph line that has just made its way all the way to Java in modern-day Indonesia. This would mean laying cable all the way across Australia from south to north and so a project that was kicked off uh, by the Royal Society of Victoria sought to make exactly this happen. They wanted a, a clear maybe not pathway, but a clear indication of what was uh, what was lying in their way from all the way in the south in Victoria and in Melbourne, all the way up to the north in the Gulf of Carpentaria. That's the sort of little bite that's been taken out, the little chunk that's been taken out of Australia between the pointy bit and the little thing, the little square-sized thing on the left there. Anyway, 
this wasn't the only reason, just one of the reasons really that, uh, that people were keen to get an expedition together. The general lack of knowledge among you know the European settlers anyway about uh, Australia's interior meant that people were curious to find out what was going on in there because obviously they had just no bloody idea. They're talking about inland seas and other nonsense like that, so they've got no idea, clearly. Uh, in fact, in 1859, uh, the government of, uh, of the colony of South Australia, obviously a vastly inferior government in a vastly inferior colony, uh, offered a reward of £2,000, which is a fair whack of cash, for the first person across Australia from the south to the north. So it's pretty clear that people were as keen as mustard to see what was going on in, in uh, inland Australia. Anyway... The Victorian colonial government, they get a project of their own going, never mind these South Australians with their 2,000 pounds, whatever. And by 1860, they've pulled everything together to make this expedition a reality. The uh, rather inventively named Exploration Committee, created by this Royal Society, uh, organised everything for the expedition between 1857 and 1860. They choose this bloke, Robert O'Hara Burke, to lead the expedition, and another bloke, William John Wills, to be his third in command. So it's Burke in charge, Wills third in command. And what happened to the second in command? And why isn't his name on the expedition, I hear you ask? Well, calm down, chill out. I'm just about to tell you. His name was George James Landells, and uh, he didn't quite make it far enough to get his name on the tin, as we'll, as we'll find out. We'll discuss that in just a little bit. Anyway, let's talk about Burke for a little bit here. He's, he's an Irish bloke born in Galway in 1821, and he moved to Australia in 1853. Now, before moving to Australia, he'd been an officer in the Austrian Army. He obviously, really had a thing for place names that started with A-U-S-T-R. Um, and he also worked as a cop in Ireland. Uh, he continued working as a cop in Victoria as well after emigrating. And, and amongst other things, he was at the Buckland Valley riots in 1857, and he actually worked as the uh, as the superintendent of police in Castle Maine. You can uh, go there today and, and, and see a, a monument that was erected to, uh, to both him and Wills uh, and, and a couple of other blokes as well on, on top of a big hill that overlooks the town. It's very, very nice indeed. Um, it's not super clear why Burke was appointed as the leader of this expedition, given he had no experience with bush survival or exploration or anything. There's a lot of talk that the the, uh, politi- the appointment was a, a political one. But uh, Wills, on the other hand, his third in command, knew a thing or two about outdoor living uh, well and truly. He was, he was very much a man of the land. Uh, he'd been born in Devon in 1834, and he worked as a surgeon with his dad over there. He's trained with, uh, in, in the, in the uh, medicinal arts uh, before moving to Australia in 1852, just a year before Burke. Uh, well, actually, he arrived. He arrived in 1853, didn't he? So he left in 1852, arrived in the same year as Burke in 1853, because it did take, you know, wasn't a 24-hour flight with a stopover in Dubai and, you know, watching bloody Wreck-It Ralph on the plane over there. It was a, it was a long, hard slog uh, by sea back in those days. Anyway, once he arrived in Victoria, he studied surveying out there in, in the country, uh, but ultimately moved to Melbourne in 1858, where he was eventually picked up as the third in command of this expedition. So these are the blokes, these are the most important blokes, the two most important blokes here, uh, who are large and in charge, and with 17 others all organised and ready to go, the expedition kicks off on the 20th of August in 1860. Now, the departure is a pretty impressive uh, affair, all told. They uh, they leave from Royal Park in Melbourne, uh, it's still there today, uh, like obviously, it's not. It's not like that particular part of Melbourne has been uh, has been you know spirited away or anything. But no, uh, it's out near the zoo. It's beautiful areas, big parks and, and and footy fields and cricket fields and all that sort of stuff. And I think there's still a monument today uh, from where they actually set up. And you know, it's it's a pretty pretty nice part of town to go to if you're ever in Melbourne. You can go there and see the uh, see where it all kicked off. But uh, it was a nice quiet place back in the day there because there are fifteen thousand people. 15,000 people assembled 4 o'clock in the afternoon um, on the 20th of August in 1860 to, to, cheer, these on, to cheer these blokes on as, uh, as, they, uh, as they get off. Huge big bloody crowd. And uh, I don't know why they left so late, leaving at 4 p.m., 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Although, you know, I guess whenever I used to go camping with my family, uh, Dad would always say stuff like, right, we're leaving at, at 6 a.m., everyone up bright and early tomorrow, and then we wouldn't leave until like 1 in the afternoon because he was too busy, you know, 
tying the trailer down to whatever exacting standards he had. I never understood. I just tried to stay out the way. Um, so yeah, not not unsurprising maybe that they uh, they uh, they left so late. Anyway. As I say, Expedition really is a sight to be seen. Not only are there 19 blokes all packed up and ready to make tracks, there are 23 horses, 26 camels, and six wagons. They've ta- they've decided they're going to go along with camels because they expected to be heading through desert further up north. But get this. Check this out. I love this. At the time the expedition was uh, being organised, only seven camels had ever been brought to Australia, ever. There had only ever been seven camels that had been brought into the country. Um, and George La- James Landells, the guy who I said was second in command, he had actually hopped over to India uh, to buy a bunch more. And so they had a big fleet of them ready to go. Uh, uh, fleet, probably not the right word to say. Then again, they are the, you know, they are the ships of the desert, aren't they? So I suppose it works. Anyway, they've got a bunch of camels that have been you know, brought over specially. And in addition to all these animals, they have so much other stuff with them. It is unbelievable. They've got two years' worth of food, a set of tables and chairs, a big gong, all sorts of rubbish. It's like, you know, when they were packing, they're looking at all the stuff and just saying, yeah, well, you know, we, we might need it someday. We might need it for something, eh? I don't know what they were needing a gong for, maybe an impromptu episode of Red Face or something. I don't know, ridiculous. Anyway, they've got 20 tonnes of gear with them, which is, as I say, a little bit ridiculous. But the the six wagons loaded up and off they go, these courageous explorers venturing bravely forth into the unknown, fearless in the face of whatever challenges may await. Uh, Wait, what? What's that? What? One of the wagons has broken down? We haven't even left Royal Park? Oh, for fuck. Okay, all right, well, fix it if you can. Bloody hell, Jesus. All that bloody, can't bloody believe it. In fact, actually, by that night, they haven't even left Melbourne. Before, they've ma- before they managed to, two more of the wagons break down. So they're plagued by, by issues before they've even got out of the city. This plus torrential rain ruining all the already bad roads means that the, the expedition was off to an absolute shocker. Wagons breaking down, roads going to hell. It's really not going too well for Burke and Wills and the rest of these blokes right, from the, right, right off the bat there. And unfortunately... Things didn't get all that much better in the coming days as they headed further north. It took them almost two weeks to get to Lancefield, which is only about 70 kilometres away from Melbourne. The roads were absolutely buggered, and so they just couldn't keep, pick up the pace. And Nonetheless, however, they plugged on. They got to the border of Victoria and New South Wales on the 6th of September, and they press on further northwards from there. On the 24th of September, well into New South Wales, Burke's decides, Burke decides to uh, to make some changes here because this, the, the pace of, uh, is just so, so slow, and he's sick of it. He wants to, he wants to he change things up here. What he does, he loads provisions onto the camels and orders all of his men to walk rather than to ride uh, so as to give the, the poor old horses a bit of a break. And uh, he also does the old budget airline trick here and puts a weight limit on everyone's luggage. He decides that everyone's personal baggage can't weigh more than 14 kilograms and he doesn't even give these bastards the option to per- purchase the old luggage upgrade online. This mongrel here, he's forced them all to, you know, put on all their extra jumpers and put all the heavy stuff in their pockets because they can't carry more than 14 kilos in their bags anymore. Now, shortly after this, after this sort of, uh, you know, changing things up to maybe pick up the pace a little bit, once they reach the Darling River, Burke decides to dump the 270 or so litres of rum that Landells, the second in command, had brought with him. Now, Landells had brought this uh, for the camels, at least that was what he said, uh, because it prevented scurvy. But that also might have just been an excuse for Landells to get boozy with all the grog he'd brought. Who, who knows? But in any case, it doesn't matter because it all gets chucks out, chucked out and Landells is bloody furious. So furious, in fact, that not long after this, he actually quits. He tells Burke to stick his exp- expedition right up his ass and he turns around to head back. And he's not the only one who does this. As a result of Landells buggering off like this, our mate Wills is promoted to second in command because quite a few others actually
actually turn tail and head back towards Melbourne as well. So the, the numbers of the expedition are already shrinking, and they have to actually hire some some locals out in these these far flung country uh, country towns there to keep the numbers up and to keep the expedition above water. Anyway. By the time they've by the time they've reached the, t- the tiny settlement of Menindee, it's now the twelfth of October, and they've only managed to travel seven hundred and fifty kilometres in two months. To give you an idea of how slow this is, uh, the Overland Mail Coach could make the same journey in about a week. And on top of this, I mentioned how Landells and a couple of others, you know, all sort of pissed off back home. In total. Two officers and 13 men had either resigned or been fired, and uh, not all of them have been successfully replaced. So, so far, things really hadn't been going well. They'd made extremely slow progress, had all sorts of setbacks, and generally things aren't great at all. And it all comes a gutter, therefore, in Menindee, where Burke decides to shake things up even further. Now... Anyone who has ever played D&D will recognise the colossal magnitude of Burke's next move. He splits up the expedition. Never split up the party. This is rule number one. First rule of d No, actually, no, it's not the first rule of D&D. First rule of D&D is make sure you buy chalk. It's bloody useful chalk. I tell you this. Use it to write messages on dungeon walls, track progress through mazes, crush it up for advantage on climbing rolls, blow it in enemies' eyes. It's kind of a little bit off topic here, but uh, seriously, if you're, ever, if you're ever playing D&D, make sure you buy plenty of chalk. Best item in the game, not close. Second rule of D&D, never split up the party. Biggest mistake you can make apart from not buying chalk, and Burke unfortunately walks right into this viper's nest. He buggers it all up, decides to split the expedition up, and in, in fairness, he does have good reason for this. Uh, you'll remember before the, the South Australian government posting uh, a £2,000 reward for the first person across Australia south to north, and there's this fella named John McDool Stewart uh, who was on the hunt for the cash with his own expedition, uh, you know, trying to trying to get this bounty that the uh, that the South Australian government had, had posted. And Burke was worried about getting beaten by Stewart, and uh, he's bloody annoyed at the at the current pace of the expedition. They're averaging about three kilometres an hour, which isn't even walking pace. And as a result, uh, Burke takes the best of the men and the horses and decides that he'll push on to Cooper Creek and wait there for the others to catch up. Cooper Creek, or Cooper's Creek, as it was called back then, it's now Cooper Creek, uh, it's the farthest point inland that any European has ever been. And it's from there that Burke is going to plan his next move north. It had been visited in 1845 by the legendary explorer Charles Sturt, but no European had ever explored any further. Now, luckily for Burke, things actually start to get better as Burke and his small party are on the way to Cooper Creek here. It's not too hot and there's enough rain to make sure they've always got enough water here. So that's good stuff there. And uh, Burke and this smaller group, they arrive at Cooper Creek on the 11th of November and they set up a camp that they called they call Fort Wills because it had a little stockade. Uh, they create a little stockade because they're expecting uh, the local indigenous population to be ready to scrap with them, which is not a particularly positive view to have of things. But, you know, whatever, that's the way that it goes there. And uh, I don't know how much you know about Australia, and in particular Australian summers, but it gets a bloody hot, bloody hot in Australia. And Burke Wills and the other six blokes that are hanging out at Cooper Creek for about a month, they are starting really to feel this. They're, by this stage, we're, we're getting stuck into summer well and truly. And this means it's about 50 degrees every day or 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's in the shade. So these blokes are sitting under the shade of the trees and it's still 50 degrees. As a result, everyone there expected Burke uh, to wait out the entire summer at Cooper Creek and, and wait for, you know, where there was shade and water, wait for the others, others to catch up and, and figure out what the next move was. But no dice, says Burke. He reckons that they need to hurry on towards the northern coast in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So Burke doubles down on his uh, on his previous mistake and he splits the party again. This time it's him 
Wills and two other blokes named Charles Gray and John King who will who will press on. Burke leaves a bloke named William Brahi Braha Brahi I think it's Brahi uh, in charge of the camp at Cooper Creek, telling him to wait for three months for them to return. Now after this, this is an interesting interesting little wrinkle here because after this. Wills comes to Brahi and he says, listen, mate, I've had a look at the old Mavsky here and I reckon we are going to be a bit longer than three months. So do you reckon, is there any chance you could hang out here for four months instead? We should be back by then. Cheers, mate. Good on you. Don't tell Burke that I told you to wait longer. Don't want to upset him, you know, because Burke, a little bit touchy, a little bit tetchy about all this sort of stuff. And uh, as a result, Wills kind of secretly tells Brahi to wait around a little longer based on his estimation of how long it's going to take them to get to the Gulf of Carpentaria and then get all the way back. Anyway, the four of them, they set off with three months' worth of supplies and six camels and one horse, hoping to get to the Gulf of Carpentaria as quick as they could. Now, the Gulf of Carpentaria, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll tell you again, just if you imagine the map of Australia, it's kind of got the pointy finger-like thing right there on the top right, and then it's got like a chunky kind of uh, more squared thing there in the middle. And between those two, there's this kind of chunk that's been taken out. It looks almost like a bite. And that's called the Gulf of Carpentaria, and it counts as the northern coast, and that is the point that these four are making for. And again, the going is surprisingly easy. It is hot as hell. But apart from that, there had been enough rain to keep them in water and the local indigenous population were quite peaceful towards them as well. So they got a bit of a hand there, which was uh, which was obviously good news. And they crack on until February, where they're forced to stop by the onset of the mangrove swamps along the Little Bino River on the 9th of February, 1861. So they've actually done a, a, a cracking job at getting this far north. But uh, this is where the trouble uh, really starts to, to, to kick in for these blokes here. The camels can't travel through the swamps. It is too boggy and marshy and full of roots and, and snares and, and pitfalls there for, for, for the camels to get through. And uh, as a result, Burke says, bugger this, I'm going to keep going on foot and Will's mate, you're coming with me. So they leave King and Grey with the camels and they press on through the marshes, but it's painfully slow going and they're starting to run out of food. The reality of the situation by this stage is actually looking pretty grim. We've talked about how successful they were in getting there, but... Things aren't as rosy as as you might think because they've I mean they've come so far and the mangrove swamps clearly indicate they're close to the sea. They can see the impact of the tide coming in and out. The water level is changing because of the tides. These are basically salt marshes. They can tell that they're very close to the ocean indeed. But because of the terrain and their supplies, they actually have to make the heartbreaking decision to give up and turn back without properly reaching the ocean. I mean, it still counts. It still counts, right? They'd made it to the salt marshes of the Gulf. They're so close to the ocean, they can see the, the tides changing the water level, but they couldn't press on all the way through to the ocean itself. And it still counts, I reckon. You've got to give it to him. You've got to give it to him. Interestingly, they kept very uh, meticulous diaries and journals of this whole thing. I mean, the whole way, I didn't mention this, but the whole way up, they've been uh, sketching and drawing and, and keeping records of wildlife, of, of, of flora, fauna, uh, rock formations, weather, everything, all of these very, really, really important scientific data, uh, but in addition to personal diaries. And it actually, it's interesting to, to, to find out that neither of these two blokes were actually that concerned that they, they didn't reach the ocean. Uh, they made some comments about how it would have been nice and how, you know, it was a bit of a shame, but they didn't actually seem that devastated that they didn't make it all the way to the coast there and again i'm going to give it to them they were that close there i mean they could you know they could smell the sea breeze on the wind just because they couldn't get through these bloody mangroves i'm going to give it to them anyway anyway 
They're forced to turn tail. You know, it, it is a bit of a disaster, I think, in the in, in the overall scheme of things for them. Even, even if they're taking it well, it is still a bit of a bloody shame. Uh, and head back to meet Graham King. And they're still very short on supplies here, so it's, it's a little bit touch and go. They left Cooper Creek with three months of supplies, and they've been gone for two just to get to where they were. This means they only had... Uh, half the supplies they'd need for the journey back. If they've already used two-thirds of their supplies and they've still got two months to go, then then they are, you know, kind of starting to wear thin on the old uh, on the old tucker box there. So they turn they turn around, they start to re- almost exactly retrace their steps. There are a couple of deviations in the in the route that they take, but they, they try to make as, as quick progress as possible all the way back south down to Cooper Creek. However, things take another turn for the worse here. If you think it couldn't get worse, well, yeah. Buckle yourselves in because it's it's only getting worse from here. Because what happens next? After rejoining with Gray and King and starting the trek south, the wet season begins. It chucks it down with rain every summer in the far north of Australia, and this year was no exception. It starts hammering down with tropical rains, and as conditions worsen, the supplies run short, they're forced to shoot some of the camels they had with them for food. Some of the camels can't even walk any further, and so they're shot for food and, and you know sort of bolster the supplies a little bit here. And this keeps them going all the way through February and March, supplies continuing to dwindle, continuing to shoot and eat the animals they had with them. Four of the six camels get shot and eaten, and finally uh, the horse as well, the one horse, Billy its name was, it gets shot and eaten as well. And uh, the funny thing is about this, we've actually got a very uh, a very good idea of where each of these animals was killed as they had to abandon a bunch of equipment each time. Obviously, they couldn't continue to carry all of the equipment that the camels were carrying. And, uh, and there are even some bones and stuff kicking about at each of these places or at some of these places at least. So we've got a, we've got a good idea of where these setbacks all took place based on the archaeological evidence that we got there. But um, uh, this wasn't the only source of food they had as well. Because they were so short on tucker, they, uh, they more or less did anything they could to keep their bellies full. They ate a type of flower called purslane. And Gray even shot a huge snake that they chomped on uh, uh, as well. But uh, unfortunately, straight after eating it, both Burke and Gray came down with dysentery. And the worst part is, Burke, despite having dysentery himself, he thought Gray was faking it. And things, things only – they go from bad to worse for poor old Grey here because Burke then catches him stealing food from the supplies and gives him a thrashing for it. So poor old Grey, he's been beaten up by Burke. He's got dysentery. He's having a terrible time. And by the 8th, 8th of April, he actually couldn't walk any, any further because of how ill he was. Um, after a few days – a few days after that, on the 17th of April – he actually dies. Poor old Gray, he uh, he kicks the bucket. And the other three, they take the day off uh, to bury him and to rest for a while, trying to gather their strength and, and figure out their, you know, how they're going to continue back. They take, a, they take a bit of a rest day on, on the 17th of April. And uh, this has truly tragic consequences, as, as we'll find out shortly enough, this rest day. Anyway... These three surviving blokes, they are absolutely buggered. Uh, They've got next to nothing to eat. They've been walking and walking for weeks on end. But nonetheless, starved, exhausted and weak as anything, just four days later, they finally arrive back at the camp at Cooper Creek on the 21st of April, 1861, only to discover that the rest of the expedition had packed up and left just a few hours before they arrived. It's absolutely heartbreaking to think about. So Brahi, right, who had been left in charge at Cooper Creek, he'd after he'd been told uh, by Burke to wait for 13 weeks, and after Wills had asked him to stay for a, uh, secretly asked him to stay for a couple of extra weeks, he'd waited 18 weeks. 18 weeks he had waited, well, uh, well and truly, a lot longer than he was expected to. 
but he had packed up that morning and departed. They, they seriously missed each other by hours. Brahe, he didn't believe that Burke, Wills, King and Grey would ever come back, but he had delayed departure for as long as possible. He'd finally decided they needed to go when one of his men had busted his leg after being chucked off a horse and was in a very, 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 very bad way indeed. So what he did, he buried a stack of supplies, about 75 kilograms of flour, oatmeal, sugar and rice, just in case the others uh, ever did make it back. And he carved a message into a tree or, or, or made a blaze, as it was called. He blazed a tree. Uh, and this tree, known as the Dig Tree, it still stands today, and part of the message on it is still visible. When Brahi carved it, it said, Dig three feet northwest, and then BLXV, which means it's short for Brahi, Camp 65, that was the number of the camp, and December, or DEC, uh, 660, April, or APR, 2161, showing the dates of the camp. So, these guys come back, Burke, Wills and King, they come back to the camp, they see the date blazed and blazing on that tree there, and they are heartbroken. They cannot believe their their, their luck there. They dig up the supplies, and so luckily they've, they've you know they've got food to go off to go with now. But Burke, Wills and King, they also find a letter from Brahi explaining what had happened and learn the devastating news that they had missed Brahi by just hours nine hours in it only nine hours imagine if they hadn't taken that rest day on the 17th they would have been they would have been made in the shade they would have been fine but as it was nine hours difference separated these three poor men from the uh, from the others who had who had started to head home you can't i mean i can't imagine to to i can't even begin to imagine how that must have felt for these blokes they're exhausted they're unable to try to catch up with the other well-fed well-rested group and and so they just have to give up and and try to recover a little bit and figure out what they're going to do next but at least at least they have supplies now at least they have supplies they're not going to starve the three of them are able to take time to regain their strength and figure out what they're going to do next now what they decide is this Rather than go back to Menindi, where the rest of the expedition had been left, uh, Burke decides to travel southwest to a cattle station near Mount Hopeless. After settling on this, Burke wrote a letter outlining their decision and buried it in the cache under the tree to be found by anyone who came looking for them. So rather than going after Brahi and the rest of his group who were heading back to Menindi, rather, trying to, rather than trying to go and meet back up with the expedition as, you know, as it is in Menindi, they decide that this, this cattle station is a little bit closer and uh, also along the creek, so they're, they're for, uh, for part of the way at least. So they will, it, it is potentially the safer option for them, especially as their camels are absolutely, they've only got two camels left and they're absolutely exhausted. So they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're pushing their luck in, in any way, really. So after burying this letter and uh, after explaining what they were going to do, uh, Burke makes a, uh, a pretty, another pretty tragic error here this one is is, is really another one that's going to tear at the heartstrings and, and we'll, we'll discover why in, in due course but i'll tell you what he did what he did is he didn't carve anything new into the tree he left th- he left the three messages that were already carved there as they were and uh, as i say this would prove to be a very costly mistake because of course he buries this this letter this this note uh under the tree but doesn't give any indication that he's done so uh and this as you'll find out proves to have some pretty disastrous consequences because the three blokes they set off along the creek on the 23rd of april to the southwest rather than back to menindi but their progress is incredibly slow as i say the camels have been run ragged by now they end up dying uh you know just nip that one in the bud they end up dying meaning the three men are actually unable to leave cooper creek as they can't carry enough water to survive a, a trip across a desert so they are really in hot water now 
Luckily for them, however, the local indigenous population, the Yandrawanda, they uh, they traded food with them, giving them beans, fish, and a type of damper, this weird seed cake bread type thing made from a plant called nardu in exchange for some of the sugar that they had. So the Yarrawandra are, uh, are providing them with supplies, which is pretty important because, again, these blokes, they don't have an, un- an unlimited amount of, uh, of food available to them, and their options as to where they're going to go and what they're going to do are extremely limited. And uh, this help from the from the Yarrawanda, it helped them out a fair bit, but they're still buggered, they're still malnourished and weak as all hell. And towards the end of May 1861, Wills actually made a trip back to the dig tree where he buried diaries and notebooks in the cache. Uh, again, however, he didn't make any new markings on the tree to indicate that he'd been back again, and he returns to Burke and King after having buried these things without leaving a trace of the fact that he'd been back to the camp. Now, unfortunately... Wills comes back to find uh, Burke had stuffed things up again beyond belief. While Wills had been away, Burke had actually fired his pistols at some of the Yundrawanda here, uh, causing them to bugger off and not come back. This meant that one of their primary sources of food was gone and was actually the final nail in the coffin for these blokes ultimately. Because as we move into June, Burke, Wills and King start trekking upstream where they thought the Yundrawanda were camped. And their health is failing, their clothes are in tattered and tatters, and it's starting to get cold. The conditions for these men are utterly, utterly miserable. They're living off the uh, the seeds of the Nardu plant, that thing that the Yandruwanda had uh, used had used to make damper. But at some point on this trek, Wills just gave up. He plonked himself down under a tree, and he told the others to go on without him, keep searching for the uh, for the indigenous people. Hopefully, hopefully they would help them. Even after Bloody Wills has you know shot at them with a, with a pistol, um, so. Uh, Burke and uh, and King are, are forced to acquiesce. They they can't they can't get Wills back up and they can't get him walking again. So they leave him a bit of food and a bit of water. And they try to shelter him as best as possible, and they they leave him to his fate and and continue on uh, for two more days. But at that point, two days later, Burke also succumbed. He uh, he sends King on further to see to see if he can find the Yundrawanda camp and uh, and seek out help from these people. But uh, after this. Neither Burke nor Wills were ever seen alive again. They perished alone and isolated in their respective uh, resting places on the banks of Cooper Creek sometime around the 27th and 28th of June. And it wasn't just the starvation and, and the exhaustion that killed them either. It was actually, if you believe it, the Nardu plant. Nardu is toxic when it's not prepared pr- correctly, and the Yandru wonder they knew how to make damper out of it so that it wouldn't make you sick. But Burke and Wills, they didn't, and they were lethally poisoned by it as a result. But King, on the other hand, if you'll believe it, he successfully made contact with the Yandrawanda again and unbelievably survived the whole ordeal. Initially, he went back to check on Wills and unfortunately found him dead and then also returned to Burke to find that he had perished as well. But King, he survived with the help of the Yandrawanda until September when he was discovered by a bloke named Edwin Welch who was part of a rescue mission that had been led by Alfred William Howitt. King was taken back to Melbourne and hailed as a hero, but he never really recovered from his experience and he died in 1872 at the age of just 33. I haven't even told you, however, even all of the tragedy we've talked about, Burke and Wills dying on the bank of Cooper Creek by themselves alone and isolated, you know, miles and miles and miles away from the people who had sent them on the expedition and, and the rescue missions that were, were, were you know, all the, already on en route to try to, to try to save their lives. This isn't the most tragic thing. The most tragic thing about this whole story involves 
the fact that they never made any further inscriptions or markings or, or blazes on the dig tree. Burke and Wills had had two opportunities to make inscriptions or markings on the dig tree to indicate that they had actually made it back there alive. The first time when they when they first came back from the Gulf of Carpentaria, and then the second time when Wills went to bury the, the, the notebooks and the journals. Um, but neither of them did so at either point. They, they actually did their best to disguise the fact that there was a cache there and disguise any indication they'd been back because they were worried about the uh, the, the locals, the indigenous po- populace, uh, raiding their cache and, and looting their supplies and that sort of thing. So they left it as as untouched, looking as untouched as possible. And the reason that this is so tragic, the reason that this is such a tragedy is because after Brahi made the decision to break camp and head to Menindi, again, only hours before Burke, Wills and King returned, he met the rest of the party that had been left behind in Menindi. There, he and another bloke, William Wright, decided that they would head back to Cooper Creek to check if the others had ever made it back. They returned to the camp on the 8th of May, found the dig tree and the area around it completely unchanged, and with no visible note, marking or message from Burke, Wills or King, Brahi and Wright assume that the men have all perished and after remaining at the camp for just 15 minutes, they turn around and leave. And the entire time, buried just under their feet, was the message that Burke had left with the information about where he, Wills and King had struck out for, information that doubtlessly would have saved their lives. Anyway, back down south, as time went on without word of the expedition, quite a number of rescue missions were actually sent out to try to find and rescue Burke, Wills and everyone else. Alfred William Howlett Howlett led the expedition that found King, and and he also buried the remains of both Burke and Wills after discovering their corpses along the banks of Cooper Creek. In addition to this expedition, ships were sent uh, to the Gulf of Carpentaria to search the coastline for signs of the explorers, although we we know they never made it to the coastline. Uh, These expeditions still found the remains of camps that they'd made upriver as they explored uh, inland at least a little bit. Another rescue mission departed from Queensland, tracing the route of the uh, the Burke and Wills expedition south in order to find clues as to what had happened to these blokes. And uh, they actually managed to make it all the way back to Melbourne in October in 1862. And funnily enough, it was this rescue expedition that was the first one to make it across the entire continent. And therefore, they were awarded the £2,000 prize for crossing uh, Australia. Nice one, lads. Good on you. You know, getting getting that two grand from the South Australians there. Well done. Um, There are a few more expeditions here and there that were sent out on foot or on horseback, most of of which uh, found a a fair bit of concrete evidence of the Burke and Wills expedition, uh, even if they didn't find the ultimate fate of those involved. A second expedition led by Alfred William Howitt was sent off uh, in late 1861, this time to recover the corpses of, uh, of Burke and Wills. They did this. They exhumed the bodies from where they were buried on the banks of Cooper Creek. And, uh, and they actually spent about six months or so exploring the surrounding area before finally returning back to Melbourne in late 1862. Um, now, after Burke and Wills had had their bodies uh, returned to Melbourne, uh, they were given a proper state funeral, which was attended by tens of thousands of people. Estimates vary. The lowest estimate I could find was 40,000. The highest estimate around 70,000. So a lot, a lot, a lot of people were there to see them off. And uh, ultimately, it really was a, a tragic end to a tragic tale. Uh, and especially more recently, Burke has copped a lot of flack for, for poor leadership and poor decision making. His appointment, as I said, was, was more political than anything else. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of the time, it didn't seem like he really knew what he was doing, and as he had no experience in bush survival. But even if you count the Burke and Wills expedition as a failure, ultimately, it did a lot to aid in the settlement of Australia. Because I'll tell you this, 
the expedition, as well as the, all the other res- rescue expeditions that were sent out afterwards, they brought back a staggering amount of information about the interior of the continent, in- including, helpfully, completely dispelling the idea that there was a big inland sea. So that one's not in the books anymore. What they did do, however, they helped us learn about the plants, the animals, the geology, the weather of inland Australia, with accurate records of everything they encountered. So, even if they lost their lives, Burke and Wills and their expedition helped us cure a great, a huge deal of scientific knowledge. And so ultimately, I think it's difficult to really label the whole thing as a failure after all. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Burke and Wills expedition. One day, one day, we will cover an expedition, an exploration mission on this podcast that didn't end in tragedy, but it is not this day. Anyway, that's that for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for hanging out with me on another episode of Half Ass History. Hope you got something out of it. If you want to get in touch with the show, uh, halfasshistory at gmail.com is the best way to contact, or just use the contact form on the website, halfasshistory.net. You can go there and find old episodes and all that sort of other nonsense. Uh, get in touch with me on Twitter, at History without an O. Wouldn't fit, very annoying. Um, and if you want some stickers, uh, I've got a whole bunch still to send out, so please just send me an email and uh, let me know that you want them with your address, and I'll send them out to you nice and quick. Might uh, chuck some other stuff in there for you as well if you're lucky. We'll see how you go. Uh, But that's that. Please get in touch with any more uh, episode uh, ideas. Uh, I've received a fair few emails. Unfortunately, some of the the submissions I've got haven't really panned out all that well. So please send in some new ones. I do apologize to those of you who sent them in and they haven't worked out. I I mean, I guess I I can have another look at stuff. But I don't know. Some of them are just a bit... A bit, bit tricky to pull together an episode. I'm, I'm probably not imagining it enough. Anyway, 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 that is that. Enough boring housekeeping stuff from me. Going to close things out as usual with a question posed on Reddit, or this one adapted, adapted from a question posed by Mister Mock eighty nine. It's a good one. It's a good one to think about here. Why didn't Burke and Wills just use Google Street View to explore Australia? <laughs>